Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky was once our evening entertainment, but now it's Netflix, iPads, Bluetooth, whatever. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. So here we are today on Dark Sky Conversations, and I'm delighted to have with us today Professor Clive Ruggles from the University of Leicester. Now, I've had the uh, delight of hearing Clive speak at the Starlight Conference in New Zealand in 2019. But uh, before we delve into that, Clive, I think I might get you to explain a little bit about how you got here and indeed how you got to speak at the conference. Ha, okay. <laughs> hi, hi Marnie. Um, yes, you want the five-minute version or the full half hour? <laughs> let's cut this oh, down. let's go yeah. for five minutes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it all goes back really to, to school days. I, I, I always had two separate interests, one in history and one in astronomy and couldn't decide which way I wanted to go and and um, I, I started to go towards astronomy and astrophysics because I was good at maths but I, I loved archaeology and I spent all my spare time when I was doing a maths degree when I was a student I spent all my spare time on archaeological digs um, told people I was going to be an astronomer and they said oh um, um, you're an astronomer what do you think of Alexander Tom and, and he was this Scotsman who'd been going around this was during the, the 60s to lots of Scottish um, standing stones megalith sites um, 5,000 year old sites in, 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 in Scotland saying they were ancient observatories for the sun and the moon and all the archaeologists were sceptical. And so I sort of inevitably got involved. It wasn't where I started. And, and um, I went off with people, some other um, undergraduates, to, to actually start surveying sites. And by the time I was halfway through my, my doctorate, which was in astrophysics, and, and um, I was deciding that actually I really rather liked all this this ancient stuff and would like to do more of it. Um, problem was, you, you can't just switch from having done a, a, a PhD in astrophysics to doing archaeology. And so um, over the next 15 years, I attempted to, first of all, to, to learn archaeology. And I, I ended up going to an archaeology department in Cardiff for three years and sort of being a student while being a research fellow, if you like. Um, and, um, and teaching computer science to, to earn a living while I was trying to make this transition. And then years later, I, I actually, um, I'm still doing loads of research at the time and, and managed to um, get into an archaeology department on the basis of that many years later. Um, so it was a struggle all the time through because all, all my research that I was trying to do didn't count because it wasn't in the right area for my department, you know. But, but um, and eventually um, they were trying to grow the archaeology department in Leicester, the university where I was had been for a, for a while by then. And um, um, fortunately, we had a really amazing professor there at the time, a guy called Graham Barker, had a lot of, of vision and foresight. And, and um, he gave me a chance and said, um, 
you know, I think um, I, I think we'd like to have you full time. And um, I went across and, um, of course, suddenly then all the research I've been doing for many years fitted with the department. Uh, yeah. um, and so that was that was how I got into eventually an archaeology department um, from, uh, from yeah, from from <laughs> beginning in maths and astrophysics. I think there's a line, isn't there, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, if anyone remembers that, you know, with one degree in maths and another in astrophysics, it was either that or the Tolkien next Monday. Well, <laughs> I had something uh, a lot better to go no. to. So now, with all that you've done, what do you think of Alexander Thomas? Well, it was like many of these things, there was a kernel of truth in it. The problem was that... Um, uh, he was saying that all oh, the, these Scottish megalithic sites were ancient observatories built to to observe the sun and the moon to great precision. And he had lots of maths and stats and things to, to back him up and had, had surveyed hundreds of them. Um, but the uh, the problem was that the archaeologists, while they were uncomfortable with this and didn't really understand the maths and the stats, most of them, um, it just doesn't fit with their social models, you know. And, and, and um, so they were deeply uncomfortable and of course, it, it, what it turned out was that most of the problem was in the selection of data, and the fact that you know, if, you're not, there's, if you go to a, a, a site in the middle of Scotland, loads of mountains around, there are lots of little notches and features on the horizon that you could decide were artificial foresights. And if you're not careful, you kind of select them to fit the theory and. Yes. That was what he was doing in a subtle way. But, of course, there was a kernel of truth in it. And so you had on the, at the time, in the 70s and 80s, most of the archaeologists on one side saying, these sites have got nothing to do with astronomy. And on the other side, various people, mostly astronomers, engineers and things, saying they've got nothing to do with anything but astronomy. <laughs> and actually, of course, they, they did have something, many of them, to do with astronomy. They might have connections to the sun or the moon or whatever. Um, but that's part of, of their bigger purpose. You know, if you were just building something to point at the sunrise, tell you what day of the year it was, you wouldn't build a huge great monument to do that. They had other meanings and purposes, but the astronomy was part of that. And that was where the story went. Right. So moving on from there, I can say that the first time I actually heard of you was in relation to the work that you did in Chanquillo in Lima in uh, northern Peru. And as I understand, it's actually quite a different structure. In fact, it is a structure that was created to look at the night sky. In a sense, my my career, which has sort of progressed, people laugh about it, from plodding around peat bogs in Scotland and Ireland <laughs> to, to um, surveying in places like Peru and, and more recently Hawaii. Um, but it, it started by critiquing people's theories of, of, of ancient sites, particular ancient sites, then went on to trying to be systematic. And that was what I was trying to do back in the 70s and 80s, look at whole groups of monuments. And we have those in, 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 in Britain and in Northwest Europe. Um, there might be 200 similar monuments. And then you can look at all the orientations and say what's in common. Might that be astronomical? Uh, rather than just picking out one that happens to be solstitially lined out of uh, lined out of 200 that or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and basically where I've gone in more recently is towards much more complex stuff. So... As you start to see more of the, the social background, why people are doing what they're doing, and you understand more of that, um, then the astronomy very often is a part of it, is mixed in with everything else. And so all the work I've been doing in, in Hawaii recently, it's all about Polynesian temples, and Polynesians, of course, knew all about astronomy because of the navigating the Pacific and other reasons. Um, <clears throat> And so looking at, uh, so, but, but as we look at those, it's all very complex. And that's really, in a way, what my whole career has been about saying, 
look, these these very spectacular theories for this site don't tend to work because actually it's all much more complex. And this one might be pointing at the Pleiades, but this other one is a different type of 10 points. And then suddenly Chankiyo comes along in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it happened while I was doing a big survey project at Nazca in, in, in southern Peru, um, you know, where the, the large geoglyphs, the, the drawings on the desert, if you like, are. They, and, what was that lady's name? The one yeah, Maria Reicher. Yeah, yeah. So she was a German school teacher originally who, who made the lines famous by saying that they were um, <clears throat> complex astronomical um, um, features to them and they were aligned on things and some of the famous figures were meant to be constellations. In fact, none of that stood up to, to critique, really. And, and That was my question. Yeah, yeah, none of it at all. And, and um, in fact, we started a big research project there, which was motivated originally. The funding was motivated by trying to follow up some of those ideas. And we, we spent five years out there surveying a large area of, of the, the Pampa, the desert um, uh, floor, um, surveying all these lines, looking at them archaeologically and, and, and looking at their orientations and everything. And basically, there's no demonstrable astronomy in there at all. I mean, they might have had some relations. They're much more related to mountains, to water, to other symbolism. And in fact, we've ended up doing a, a huge archaeological project there, which really has no astronomy in it at all. Uh, in fact, I'm writing that up at the moment. Um, but it was just in the middle, because if you're you're a, um, a non-Peruvian running a project there, you, you have to have a, a, a project co-director who is Peruvian. And in I think it was the second year we were out there, um, I uh, our co- my co-director was a guy called Ivan Getzi, um, and he I had the privilege of meeting Ivan. Oh, well, he's a great guy, isn't he? He's is, he's fantastic. And and um, he said, oh, I've got this site up in in northern Peru, which I think might be aligned on the sun. Do you fancy coming and looking looking at it? You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, Ivan. You know, I hear this stuff sort of, you know, a All couple of times time. every month. You know, there's always someone who's got a, a line site. But eventually, I was persuaded, and we 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 made the journey, which is. Uh, you know, a, a sort of day back to Lima, a day back up, uh, then up to um, his site. And um, we just, I just did the measurements. And, and um, of course, then that first, that, that, that first, it was just two days survey work. And that showed that it actually fitted this idea and that, that you had um, this point, which was an open entrance in one of the buildings from which these 13 towers are on the horizon. They just span the solar rising arc. And that, you know, there's, there's just nothing like that anywhere else. You get sites that are aligned on maybe sunrise at one time of the year, at the solstice particularly, but not something that marks out the whole year like that. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and of course, the scepticism of that is that, well, you know, have you chosen this place? So if you've got a line of something that's pointing north-south, then obviously there is going to be some point somewhere to the west where the, that line of things will, if they're on the horizon, will span the solar arc. Has he chosen the point? But but no, because this point was a completely unique place on the site. It was a um, an open entrance is, yes. that you had to go around this sort of um, corner through a, a corridor to get at. It was the only entrance on the site that never had a door. They can see that because you can see where the door jams were, the wooden jams um, in, built into the stone. Um, they didn't have any. So it was just this open entrance with room for one or two people to stand with these towers on the horizon ahead of you. And there were a whole load of, of offerings all around. 
So clearly it was a sacred spot. People were standing there making offerings. So archaeologically, the spot is important. And then archaeoastronomically, it was the spot where you, you know, you, those towers span the horizon. So that, in a sense, it was the, the sort of revelation moment. It's the thing everyone would look for. Hey, you know, this, this really works. And of course, it, it um, became famous then. Um, but, but life isn't normally like that, you know. <laughs> no, no, you're very lucky to. Yeah, yeah absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And when was that dating back to? So that's dating to about 220 BC. Um, and the extraordinary thing is that we can date it that accurately. Um, and that's because of dendrochronology, tree ring dating. There are actually preserved timbers on the site because it's so dry. Is that the buttresses in the door jams? Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it, yeah. The, well, it's up on the fortress on the hill um, the, 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 that um, uh, overlooks the, 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 uh, the towers. And so there is a um, what appears to be a fortified temple. So it's, it's uh, three buildings, including a big rectangular building, that were incredibly well defended. There were three uh, huge walls around them with false entrances in. And we're talking, um, you know, if you're going through one of these entrances, you would have to go round this labyrinth and and uh, of, of very narrow pathway with walls up to five metres high on both sides. There was a junction. If you went the wrong way, you came to a dead end. And four out of five of these doors came to dead ends both ways. So, you know, if you were an enemy, you didn't stand much chance, you know. Um, so they're incredibly well defended, but <clears throat> and while you look at the the this this um, the, the plan of this from the from the sky or on a map, it looks geometrically very perfect. It's like a, a sort of triangle with rounded corners. But when you look at it on the ground, it's actually draped over the side of a hill that looks down over the the towers and the plazas next to it, the whole the the whole ceremonial site that surrounds the towers, and. Um, it's so it's done so that the the temple as 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 we believe it is looks out with a clear view over everything that's going on below and everyone can see up to the temple um and yet it's still incredibly well fortified because these these walls drape down over the over the hill so it looks rather sort of bedraggled when you when you see it you see these walls sort of draping down over the hill but then when you see the plan you realize how well it was actually planned I understand this is mostly speculation, but who was it? Who was looking for this information? Well, I think what it tells you in broad terms is there's some, there's certainly some sort of social hierarchy going on. So the person who stands at the entrance stairs of the temple or else um, at, uh, the the um, the building, the observatory building, we call it, where, where you looked at the sunrise from, um, there was only room for one or two people in either of those places. So they were clearly... Uh, high status individuals, whether they were priests or or, or whatever, um, but you had all the crowds out there on the plaza, so there's plenty of evidence. There's 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 pan pipes. There's there's um, corn that, that they were they made corn beer from the places storing it. People were having a, a big celebration out there on the pampas um, to 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 the 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 east side of the the towers. So. Um, it looks, you, know, you can't help thinking, oh, this is it, it's sort of a bit reminiscent, although obviously a lot, lot separated from the, the, the Inca hierarchy with the sun you know, 1,500 years later. I'm not suggesting there's any connection, but um, it reminds you of that because you're thinking, OK, so there's something, some ceremonials being directed by where the sun is, what the date is, relation to the towers. And, and sure, there's some high status individual directing those, 
but um, you know the masses are taking part. A large number of people are taking part. So that kind of draws me to the next question, and maybe this is related more to the Polynesian work that you do. But it makes me question how cultures over the years have understood the world through light. Well, I think the the the, the, the first obvious thing is that that um, the people in in ancient cultures saw the dark sky and were with it every every single clear night. Um, so it was part of their world, their universe, if you like, in a way that for most people in the world today it isn't. So they had that that connection because basically um, the dark sky and the night sky was as much part of the world they were familiar with um, as the, everything on the, on the land around them during the day. Um, and, and of course, if they didn't have any other large form of, of, of light, then nights when the moon was up, for example, would be very different from nights when it wasn't and it was much darker, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I think the other the other thing is that, that, of course, we think of things in the sky um, in terms of astronomy or meteorology, whatever it is. But because of it all goes back to Linnaeus, because of the way that Western science classifies things so that we can understand them better and in better depth. You know, if it's to do with animals on the ground, it's biology and so on. And so if it's in the sky, it's astronomy. And we think of it as astronomy. and We don't think of it in relation to other people. Well, Cultures in the past generally, yes, people in the past also were trying to make sense of the world, the universe they were living in, but they did it by making connections between things that for us are in completely different categories. So they would make connections between things that they saw in the sky as much as anything else around them. It was all part of understanding everything that was going on. So for them, the sky is just an integral part of everything in a way for us, it's become separated. And more and more separated with light pollution. Well, absolutely. Absolutely right. So I remember that at the conference in New Zealand, you talked about the Polynesian society in Hawaii and how that may be used to help create dark sky places. But would you like to expand a little bit more on the work that you've done there? Yeah, well, I, was, I think I was talking at the conference more about the world heritage and how we, we relate the dark skies to to world heritage and, and help maybe world heritage help us protect dark skies. Um but from the point of view of the the Hawaiian temples, do you want me to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I mean, that would be yeah. Great. So, so the point about those is that um, we know that the Polynesians, of course, navigated these vast um, sections of the Pacific, and and they did it using the stars along with other things such as ocean swells and so on. So the the Polynesian navigators knew their stars basically. Um, <clears throat> And of course, the the that sort of knowledge of the sky is 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 something of great cultural value uh, value even amongst um, um, Hawaiians today. Um, and although that original knowledge was lost back in the seventies, people were challenging um, even the idea. Some academics were challenging even the idea that the Polynesians had. Um, navigated the Pacific deliberately. You know, they they basically explored, found islands, and then gone out to colonise them. Um, and there was this idea floating around that they they went out accidentally. People were you know um, leaving islands for whatever reason, desperation or something, and 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 um, most of them died, but a few of them happened across other islands. And um, <coughs> as part of the 
challenge to that in the 70s and part of it was an academic um and challenge and and and, and uh, looking at historical star knowledge and sky knowledge and so on but another part of that was the um uh, the creation of a thing called the Polynesian Voyaging Society, who started to recreate, um, and they recreated a um, Polynesian-style double canoe, voyaging canoe. They called it Hokulea, which is the, the Hawaiian name for the star Arcturus, which was the guiding star, the overhead star for, for the Hawaiian Islands. And... Um, and then they, they sailed this by the stars um, using traditional navigation methods, which they picked up from um, one or two surviving navigators in Micronesia, in fact. Um, but then also with astronomical knowledge, they picked up from local um, astronomers in the planetarium. So they put these together and they effectively recreated um, a, a navigation tradition, which has been blossoming ever since. I mean, if you like, this is a this is a modern tradition in, in, in absolutely um, the, the con continuation of the, the ancient traditions, taking what it could, trying to recreate what it did, could. It's fantastic, yeah. And so, um, you know, in, in that sort of content, I, I um, worked with a couple of, of Hawaiians um, who had written a book on star names around that time. An amazing lady called Rublite Johnson, who's now well into her 80s, and a, a, a former student of hers, John Mahilona, who's my age. Um, that's mid-60s, by the way. And, and we've worked together, on, and since then, on a second and now a third edition of this Star Names book. So it's been a privilege for me to work with them. And we go back to the original Hawaiian sources back in the 19th century. It was when the, the Europeans came in, the, the um, Hawaiians really went for um, writing and they produced uh, these um, daily newspapers in Hawaiian that were, were um, from, from the mid 19th century onwards and there's a mass of stuff in those and many of these have been preserved in archives um, many of them are online now thank thank goodness and um, but it's very difficult to understand them even if you you are a Hawaiian speaker which of course I'm not but John is so since then has the lang the Hawaiian language developed in that time well, um, well, it has in some ways, but but um, and yes, yeah, so modern Hawaiian is different anyway. There are new words and so on, clearly. But the main thing is that Hawaiian has a diacritical accent, so it has macrons like Mari, um, and that's they're important because they show you where where you have long vowels as opposed to to short vowels. But it also has glottal stops, so little. Um, um, you know, a pause. It's like a like a Londoner saying butter says butter. You know, um, and they have that sound, but you write it. So is that like in the word Hawaii? Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, it, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so it's, yes, it's like a, a Brit saying old blighty for England. But if he's from London, he'll say old blighty. And that's the sound. Hawaii. Yeah. So, um, but the point is that those early writings didn't put those glottal stops in. And they didn't put the macrons in. So if you are not a fluent Hawaiian speaker, the possibilities of what they can mean are very difficult. So so um, working with John has been approved. So we go through this stuff and he says, um, this is what they seem to be talking about. And I'm saying, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. Could it mean that? And could sometimes, it yeah. and sometimes more often than not, he'll say, no, Clive, the Hawaiian says this. But sometimes he'll say, oh, yeah, you know, so, so yes, it might mean that or that. So we work it through and um, we've come up with, so with yeah, it's fantastic. So we've, we've come up with a lot more stuff that's been going into the book. But alongside that, I've also been privileged to work with, with a, an archaeologist called Pat Kirch, 
who's who's really the person in Hawaiian and Polynesian archaeology, Pacific archaeology in, in, in general. Um, and he actually has an interest. I mean, he's originally from, he's not Hawaiian, but he's originally from Hawaii and he's now back there at the university. And... Um, he had, has an interest in, in orientations of temples as well as all the other stuff that he does. And we got working together about 20 years ago on Maui and looking at an area of Maui where fortunately it hadn't been converted into golf courses and, and um, resorts. resorts. Yeah, and, and so um, it, it, there was a preserved landscape with loads and loads of buildings, temples, gardens and so on. And he and his team from Berkeley, where he was at the time, had been doing a huge um, archaeological survey of the area. And so Pat and I got together and started looking at the temple sites, which were... Um, there's about 70 in that area. And um, because we can date them, we have a we have a special form of dating, which is nice. You, you know, of radiocarbon dating. Mm. Um, well, there's a equivalent form of, of um, um, dating, which is um, the, the atomic clock, if you like, is set off by breaking off a piece of coral from under the sea. And it's a transition from uranium to thorium isotopes. But as a, a, a radiocarbon has a higher half-life of 5,000 years, which means you can't be that accurate with the dates. Um, but um, this uranium-thorium has a half-life of 50 years. And fortunately, people had the habit of taking and breaking off coral heads and taking them up and um, putting them on the altars when they built... Yeah, that was good of them, really, when they built the temples or even placing them in the walls, which is even better. So we can date some of these to, like, within three years. We've got dates like 1612 AD plus or minus three and this sort of thing. Um, But it does tell us that whole area, which was quite marginal, which is why it hasn't been developed now... Was was developed quite late in the day. It was the Polynesians first arrived there in about thousand AD, and it was you know the end of the eighteenth um, century before the Europeans got there. So, um, in those eight hundred years, um, first of all, people were colonising the the westernmost islands predominantly, where if you like life, the living was easy, and there were lots of fish. There you could grow the taro and the, the in wetlands and. But by the time the population had grown and we get to like 1600 AD, then people are coming onto the more easterly islands in greater numbers and life is difficult. And, you you, you know, the, some of the, the volcanic lava and, and the older stuff in, in, in Maui is quite uh, is quite good to to um, and grow things in. But it's hard work and it's dependent on the weather and, and all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, people seem to um, come into this area within a generation or two around that time, around 1600, as we can tell from the dating. Um, so we have a consistency in practices. And what we see is that there are um, different orientation trends and they seem to correspond to the four main um, gods in the Hawaiian pantheon, which we know of because of all the ethno history, all the accounts that were written down after the Europeans arrived. Um and one of these gods um, was was Lono, who is um, the god of, well, they're all gods of many things, the god of dryland agriculture and things. He was the one that Cook was taken for when he first arrived on the island. And, and um, he has an association with the calendar. And the thing that defined the calendar in Hawaii, the two main parts of the year, as, as in other parts of Polynesia, were the Pleiades, looking at the, the rising of the Pleiades and the... the 
Heliacal, that's right, the, the Heliacal Rising, which is used as still used in um, New Year in, in most of southern Polynesia, um, when, the, when the stars, because they're, they're rising four minutes earlier every day or every night, by the time they first come up before the sun, the Heliacal Rise, that marks the, the New Year still in, in, in say, New Zealand. Um, in Hawaii, the, um, it's the, um, the rising at sunset, or just after sunset, the first time you see them up in the sky after sunset, the Akronical Rise. And that sets off a period of, of time when people were, rather than making war and, and, and other things, they were um, having to accept tributes and, and um, the, the, the chiefs came round in the landscape and took tributes. And, and um, um, But the thing is, it was, was using the stars and using the calendar as a form of social control that built up in those areas. And that's that's rather in, interesting archaeologically. But the, the astronomy and the calendar was being manipulated as part of that. So in a sense, what we've been doing there, yeah. yeah. It's very good. So going to, I guess, the heart of the podcast, I guess I mean these people have had an enormous amount of knowledge about the planet, etc., from what they saw in the night sky. What are we going to lose in the future with future generations by losing contact with the night sky? Well, do you know, one of the things that, that I, I find most distressing is that when, you know, when I go, I go out and about, I, I generally, if the sun's out, I know which direction I'm pointing in because I know vaguely what time of day it is, where the sun is and this sort of thing. And of course, you know, knowledge, just basic knowledge like that would have, everyone would have had it in the past. And now virtually no one has it. We've lost that connection. They have it on an app. Well, they have it on an app. And then, yes, what happens when the app goes down? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think it's so important to to try and get that, even that daytime connection, let alone the, the nighttime connection to the sky. And, you know, you know, with all the problem, all of what we're doing to the planet at the moment, um, I think, you know, one of the big things to try and wake people up to that before it's all too late is just to point out, you know, how little we are in the universe. Many people have said it. And, and by just looking um, and just seeing the, the, the dark sky and comprehending all the stuff that's out there, um, even if you don't have any idea and, and comprehension of how distant it all is and how, how actually how empty it all is, but it still gives you this impression of how small we are. We're just one little part in all this stuff. And surely that helps you know, people think about preserving this one planet we're on. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Well, well. So... I guess also the thing that comes to mind is just the loss of culture, you know, that understanding of where we've come from and what, why we're here and what our knowledge has grown on. Well, well I think also a lack of, of, of appreciation of the different ways of knowing things. So that, you know, of course, because we, we, you know, most of the world follows Western science. So, and of course, you know, astronomy in recent decades has done fantastic things about what we now know about the universe and the expansion of the universe and, 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 and how galaxies formation and, you know, the first few seconds of the universe, all this sort of thing. Um, you know, all that is just incredible. Um, but at the same time, in the past, um, people were, you know, there was no objective way to understand the stars and different people had different ways of understanding 
um, and, and how they understood what was going on in their particular environment, in their particular forest or place that they lived and so on and, and place they moved and the people that were. And so everyone had their own understanding of how things worked and how, you know, their what they had to, to, to do to subsist and the right things they had to do at the right times of year and, and, and whether it be hunting, whether it be, be growing things, whatever. Um, and the, the the sky and the stars, together with everything else, would all be part of knowledge about how that all worked. And that knowledge will be different from place to place. And I think what we've what we've lost is a sort of respect for all these different ways of looking at things and for the, the, the human ability to understand things in different but, but relevant ways. And the way it connects to our immediate environment as well. Yeah, absolutely so, absolutely yeah. so. Um, so just finishing up, I've asked our previous guests what their favourite or most memorable dark sky or dark environment experience has been. Have you got one? Well, yes, I do have one. And I'm, I'm honestly not telling you this because you're in Australia, but it actually happened in Australia. Um, and so, you know, uh, other people have heard me say this. Um, yeah, it was a few years ago and I was um, had taken a, a, a weekend trip out from Melbourne inland with a, with a guy who studied Aboriginal sites and took me and a friend out to, um, to look at some of these sites. Is that Ray Norris? No, it wasn't actually. It was a, um, no, a guy called John Morrison. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and so we'd gone, we'd gone out with John and the, the guy I was with was a guy called Hugh Cairns, who's also done a, 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 a lot of work and with, with um, one particular um, Aboriginal elder, Yadam Duma. Um, Bill Harney um, and so Hugh's written a couple of books with with Bill Harney about song lines in the sky um, but anyway so Hugh and I were, were um, going out with John and um, and we were, we were camped one night and um, John and I were uh, Hugh and I rather were in one tent and then suddenly there's this flapping on the tent about three o'clock in the morning and it's John Hugh Clive come and look at the emu and I'm, 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 I'm so, and I'm sort of groggy at three in the morning. I say, John, I don't want to come and look at an emu at three in the morning. No, 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 you've got to come. I, and, and of course, what he meant was the emu in the sky. And I got out, came to, came out of the tent, and I still remember that as possibly the darkest sky I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, the whole sky was just simply full of stars. You you can't see the normal constellations because there's just so many. You just see a blanket of stars. The Milky Way was right over the top, and you perceive it as behind um, the 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 stars because which it actually is. But you 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 perceive it because um, there's stars in front of it, and there's all these dark clouds which are actually dark hydrogen clouds out there um in front of the Milky Way. But you you perceive them as in front of the Milky Way, and in that configuration. The emu in the sky, known to various Aboriginal groups, was was actually um, standing in the most amazing configuration. So the, the head of the emu was about halfway up the sky, about 40, 45 degrees up in the sky. It's the, the, the coal sack for the astronomers. And and that you is is way up in the sky. And then you see in this configuration the the neck, the body coming down towards the horizon. And um actually you also imagine you see the legs when when it's up in the sky the legs aren't so clear but when it's down in that configuration it's like a gigantic thin 
<coughs> emu stretching up from the horizon halfway up towards the 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 uh, the zenith and you think how can i and how can everyone in the western world have like have imagined constellations in the sky by joining <laughs> the dot streams here's this blooming great shape of an emu up there and my that is so impressive uh, that that without a doubt was my moment and i've never forgotten it isn't that fabulous yeah i have to say i'm excited that you saw the emu in australia it's such a powerful memory I've taken groups out to Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabarabran and we've seen the emu in different places in the sky. But I do remember one particular lady bursting into tears when she saw it. And as you say, once you've seen the universe that way, you can never see it the same way. It's not just a bunch of dots in the sky that's trying to make a and It's That's right. It's an actual huge shape of an emu looking over you from the sky. Yeah. Extraordinary. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you so much for your time and encourage our listeners to go out and look at any website they can find that uh, mentions Chankio and really look at this fantastic site in northern Peru. Uh, And whilst you're there, uh, check out the work that Clive has been doing on dark skies in Polynesia. Uh, He's really doing a lot of work to help us preserve the night sky. So thank you very much, Clive. No, thank you, Marnie. Thank you.